You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Allison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of So You Want to Be a Writer. I'm Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. Alison, how are you? I'm extremely well. Thank you, Valerie. The sky is blue, the air is brisk, and I am warm, which is always a great start. Are you t- there typing on your fingerless gloves? I am. I'm right. As a writer, interestingly, I am actually writing today, which is um, is quite exciting. And yes, I have my fingerless gloves on, and I'm very toasty. Thanks for asking. <laughs> and what have you been up to since we last spoke? Well, I, surprisingly, again, I've been writing. Like I, I know that every time you ask me this, I'm always doing something <laughs> different. But I'm actually I'm working very, very hard on on some edits and on, on writing new material for book three of my Mapmaker Chronicles series. And I've had an idea, a new idea, I love a new idea, mm-hmm. a new idea for another um, adult novel. So I've been making a few little notes about that as they come to me. And, um, yeah, so that's what I've been doing. It's, it's, um, it's actually it's been a really, really good week of just immersing myself in it, which is my favourite kind of week, really. Productivity. What about you? Yeah. Uh, well, I've been doing a couple of things. On the less exciting side, I have been cleaning up our server, which is a uh, pretty geeky wow. thing to do, but also uh, a little bit boring to most people probably because we have some new team members starting at the Australian Writers' Centre next week. And it's kind of like, you know, when you clean up for the cleaners, I don't know if you do that, but I kind of have a cleaner. Okay. <laughs> I would be cleaning up for myself, which would be sort of like right. counterproductive. Similar yeah. concept. Anyway. So it's yeah. like cleaning up for the cleaners and I've, it's kind of like you don't want them to think, oh, my God, your files are so messy. So um, I'm trying to declutter on that front. Um, on the on another side, I've been, oh, I've been making people cry a bit lately. But not, not in a bad way, not in a bad way, I'd like to say. But I have noticed this is a bit of a trend when I do talk to people so I wrote a blog post about it and I'll put the link in the show notes but I seem to when I talk to people I don't necessarily ask personal deep dark skeletons in the closet kind of questions but for some reason I just managed to kind of ask the right questions that hit what they really want to do in life and as a result often tears um, (laughs) emerge and so but you know, on the on the plus side, I'd like to think that they are tears of relief and tears of joy that they're finally, um, you know, <laughs> figuring out what you, they really want to do. You should totally just go with that thought because otherwise, you know, it would be too hard to cope with. But I would have to say that I think that part of the reason that you do that, and this I can say this from knowing you for as long as I have, um, I think that your BS meter is is kind of really finely tuned, and I think that what one thing that you do extremely well is you just don't really put up with it. So if people are saying to you one thing and you're knowing that what they really want to say is something else, you just go, you come in with the hard question and it's, it's like, why would you do that? And you go, oh, my God, she's so right. Why would I do that? Why would I do that? It's just, 
and there you go. I have to say, you have never actually reduced me to tears, but there have been times where I've been a little bit edgy, shall we say? (laughs) In a good way, in a very good way. Okay, in a good way. I will go with that. So what's been happening in the world of writing, publishing and blogging this week, Al? Well, I came across a very interesting little blog post over on the Booktopia blog, and I have to say I do enjoy the Booktopia blog as a a reader and as a writer. I I find that they cover off some really interesting things, and of course they run Australia's favourite novelists every year, and they they do some great stuff, and they're so incredibly supportive of the Australian book industry that's I mean you know like I just think you you can't ever underestimate the importance of having that sort of massive reach that they have and using it as they do um so they this uh in this particular blog post they they did a little wrap up of um an Anne Summers report that Mm. John Purcell from Booktopia had taken part in and of course John we interviewed um, in one of our earlier episodes of So You Want to Be a Writer, and he was terrific. He had some great insight into how booksellers work, and I do think that if you haven't heard that episode, it's really worth having a listen to. Yeah. This particular blog post was about the book industry. Is it living or is it dying? And three experts have had their say within this particular Anne Summers report. And I just wanted to bring it to everyone's attention because I think it's really worth, there is so much press about this all the time. Mm. And you have to wonder how much of it is self-fulfilling prophecy and how much of it is is actually happening. And I think it's a good idea to have a, just um, have a little look at what these three experts have to say. Uh, one of them is um, Angelo Lukakis, who mm. is the Executive Director of the Australian Society of Authors. Uh, one of them is Fung Ling, who has um, two decades' experience as an editor and a publisher of books. And one of them is John Purcell himself. And his little snapshot at the bottom, he has done like a little doing well, like a little report card, I guess, was what really caught my attention. Sums up his piece in, you know, five points for the positive, five points for the negative. Um, and I think it's worth anyone who wants to be a writer and wants to be part of this industry needs to take an interest in this kind of stuff. From my perspective, I think you need to know what's going on. It's really important. So I would very much recommend um, having a look at that, having a look at the report, and um, we will, of course, put the um, the link in the show notes. Definitely. And I think a particularly interesting one that John Purcell mentions that, uh, you know, that publishers can do better is an industry-wide, so not just publishers, publishers, bookstores, authors, everyone, um, uh, an industry-wide effort to get books back into the mainstream media because it's true that, you know, there used to be entire huge sections on books. Um, yeah, true. And, and they've, you know, reduced in size considerably over the last few years and partially that's to do with you know advertising revenue and that sort of thing and I definitely agree with him in that that it needs to be an industry-wide effort but I also think that at the core of that we need to make sure that our authors are you know kind of educated in how to get publicity you know just kind of sending your book out to lots of people saying hey can you please review it isn't necessarily the best approach it can be sometimes useful just to do some basic you know publicity training or if you can't even do that at the absolute most basic level have a um, website that says what your book is about an easy way to download the cover image of your book yeah like in high res And a decent photo of yourself because you'll probably get more coverage if you do have a decent photo compared to if you, you know, have no photo or a crappy photo. So just And also, can I – 
Can I just interject there too? Because one thing yes. I would say is please have contact details on your website. Oh, yes. And, and, and I'm saying that from the perspective of a person who's currently in the process of doing a whole range of author interviews for this podcast for other things. And some people I'm struggling to get in touch with. And I think I that if I struggle to get in touch with you, I can't interview you and therefore we can't talk about your book and we can't put your name out there and we can't do all those things. So, you know, as you say, basic website with contact details, with a photo, with what your book is all about. I mean, you don't have to blog, you don't have to do all that stuff, but yep. at least make yourself findable. Contact details, absolutely, and accessibility. In fact, only last week a journalist rang me to uh, do an article she needed. She had she was going to uh, feature four high-profile people, and she already got three, and she wanted a fourth, and she wanted an author. So she rang me for the recommendation, and she said, but I need the quotes in the next two hours. Mm. And so then I immediately had to filter through my brain and I had to say to her, oh, you can ring so-and-so, but she never rings you back. You can ring so-and-so, but, you know, he never picks up the phone. But you uh. can, if you ring so-and-so, she's very likely to call you back. So, and that's, yeah. guess who ended up in, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald? So, yeah, yeah, that yeah. person. So, it, it's, it, you know, your contactability and your accessibility is really important. It is, absolutely. So what else have you discovered for us this uh, well, week? Well, just on a different note, uh, there was an interesting post in Mumbrella because, you know, and um, it's actually about a Reader's Digest annual survey of the most uh, trusted professions. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and it says that journalists have once again struggled to convince the public to trust them, coming oh. in at number 42 on the list, beaten by... Beaten by lawyers, taxi drivers, and get this, airport baggage handlers. Oh my lord! <laughs> Only faring slightly better than radio talkback hosts who came in at number forty-three. Oh dear! So, how do you feel about that, Al? You know, we're in this profession, and we're not oh, trusted. I feel like we need a public relations offensive. Is what I is what I feel like. Um, I don't, look, I don't know. I, look, I think that part of the problem is journalists, um, you know, journalism as an industry takes in a wide range of styles yeah. of conduct and of work ethic and of all sorts of different things. So I, I think it's a matter of, of um, I don't know, all you can do is do the best you can and be trustworthy within an untrustworthy industry. I don't yeah, know. That's like, what right. do you think? Well, I think that, of course, the ones that um, gain the most coverage are the most sensational. So the the door stoppers, the current yeah. affair types, the people, you know, who chase shonky dealers through the streets or whatever um, on television. And so people get that impression of journalists where, in fact, the vast majority of the pressure have really high ethics and really um, – you know, strong, independent editorial principles at which they, you know, which they adhere to because they're not necessarily chasing TV ratings or, or that sort of thing. But I do understand because, you know, that's really what is um, most in the media. But um, it's interesting because I also just came across this post on um, how to be a wildlife journalist. Now, Heavens. I stumbled upon that and I thought to myself, wow, that's 
specific. I don't imagine mm. that there are a great number of our listeners who want to be wildlife journalists, but it did occur to me, you know, that there are some people who just totally want a niche. And when they become freelance writers or, you know, writers of any sort, they really just want to write about music or they only want to write about I met a lady but admittedly she was a blogger but all she wanted to write about this was recently was South Indian Bollywood movies specifically from South India and she's like a Melbourneian who's a banker during the day but (laughs) she all she wants to write about is South Indian Bollywood movies and so what's your advice to people who are wanting to be a writer do you think they should niche or do you think they should be more you know generalists Well, I personally think that niching can be an incredibly constructive way forward if you have a particular niche that is, and this would probably be my my sort of caveat, if you uh, have a particular niche that, that is, is going to work in a general sense, like, like I know a lot of people who, who um, specialise in finance or specialise in mm. health or specialise in, in those kinds of things and those sorts of things can be very, very useful because you have a wide contact base, you become, dare I say it, a trusted source of reliable information in that sort of um, zone and you also become, like, you become the go-to girl or boy for health stories or finance stories or whatever. And that can be an incredibly um, useful and lucrative thing to do. Um, My only suggestion would be that uh, if you make your niche too narrow, you know, like the South Bollywood... The South Indian Bollywood thing is fantastic in the sense that that person will become the go-to reviewer of those movies. But you've got to think about how many um, outlets for those stories will there actually be. That would be my only caveat. Your thoughts? Would you agree? I would say so. I think that you need to start with your area of interest. So, you know, whether that is health or finance or that sort of thing. Um, And also then you need to think about, um, I guess what I did though was because I, as you know, we both came from Clio, which was a very, very, really specific market. What I really Mm. craved after four years there was to write about lots of different things, not just Mm. about, you know, orgasms and celebrities and that sort of thing so I I really wanted to write you know I I loved the fact that as a freelancer not tied to a particular publication I could interview a CEO one day and interview a rock star the next and interview the guy who owns the corner shop the next so um, I liked that but I think that what can be useful if you want to make a career out out of it you know make like proper salary from from your freelance writing is to have a couple of niches, but don't uh, so that you do become the go-to person within the industry about that. But be open to writing about other things because it's just so interesting delving into other areas and yeah. and find and get doing something outside of your particular niche. And it opens up opens you up to heaps more opportunities, in my opinion. Yeah, so. absolutely. I mean, I just you don't close any doors. I mean, that's yeah. that's the that's probably the best advice. Mm. So speaking of niching, an interesting post that I came across this week was actually about technical writing and it's about technical writing may offer a secure career opportunity for the working writer. Now, we've actually had a few students who have come through our course and they've been in other roles in you know their industry and they've actually become technical writers because they've started off as you know engineers or you know whatever they are and now they've they've learned 
the skill of writing and they've decided they actually want to stay in their company but moving into a technical writing role gives them the opportunity to earn money from writing which is where Mm. their interest is now but use their skills that they got their degree in or, or whatever it is so I think that's something that it's often overlooked because we you know we talk about being a novelist or being a magazine writer or this that and the other but there is this whole um you know industry of technical writers and they're yep. the people who 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 write um software manuals or they write the instructions of processes and workflows within an organization because it's a very specific skill to take something you know relatively complex or a little bit scientific and really just speak about it in or write about it in real layman's language so and I take my hat off to them because it's it's it can be quite harder but it can be very well paid as well yes have you ever done any technical writing or anything like that um, well, I didn't realise that was what it was called at the time, but yes, I have done that kind of work in the past, and I think it—I think you're right. I think if you can, if you're someone who has a skill in a, or expertise in a particular area, or you are someone who is particularly good at taking very complicated um, ideas and transforming them into relatively easy to understand language mm. then it is a great way forward because you know I've got to say that most of the writing jobs that I see you know advertise um just sort of you know casually on seek or on on, on those sorts of things and the government jobs mm. government jobs are mostly technical writing jobs so yeah. it is it can be um a very um great way to make money you know from your writing if, if that's what you you know if if you can do it and it's a really good transition job because when you are an engineer or a scientist or whatever, it can often be such such a big leap in your head to think, I'm going to become a writer now because they're mm. completely different. But a technical writer, and that's what some of our students done, have, have they've used technical writing as a transition job because they're staying in the organisation because they're, they're good at what they do. The organisation doesn't want to lose them. But they move into a technical writing role because they've got all that experience behind them. Now they can, you know, write for a living. And then their next step is is then being full-time, being a full-time writer and moving slowly out of technical writing and writing about more things than, you know, their particular niche. So it's yeah. a good, yeah, transition job. But let's move on to our book this week. Um, yes. I picked up this book uh, just last week and I haven't read it yet because it's on my pile, but it's an interesting premise because it's called Books That Changed the World the 50 mm-hmm. most influential books in human history. Now, it's been written by um, someone called Andrew Taylor and he includes um, books like, well, the Bible, mm-hmm. um, the Iliad by Homer, mm-hmm. uh, the Kama Sutra, <laughs> mm-hmm. the Canterbury Tales by Chaucer and mm-hmm. things like um, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, Uncle Tom's Cabin for, you know, obvious reason, right up to, mm-hmm. you know, 1984 by Orwell. Um, Mm -hmm. Interestingly, it also includes Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone um, by J.K. Rowling. What books have changed the world in your opinion or at the very least changed your world? Right. Now, I always find these kinds of questions incredibly difficult and I feel that this is something that I'm actually going to have to, um, you know, sit down one day and actually write myself an answer because I'm increasingly being asked this question and I increasingly have no idea. So I think my problem is 
um, as a voracious reader, but I have read so many books, um, so many books that I loved for different reasons, so many books that I hated and threw across the room, but were possibly, um, you know, books that other people thought were amazing. Like, I, you know, like I, I'm always fascinated by my reaction to books that everyone loves that I hate. Like, I, I think that for me, for every book has changed my my world in some way, shape or form because I think they all build on one another to to turn you into the kind of writer you are or the kind of reader you are or something like that. But I am not someone who can say, oh, my God, I read that John Green book and it completely turned me into a different person. I'm not that person. I'm someone who reads, has read a million books and a small part of them has sort of all come together to turn me into who I am. Um, so, yeah, so that's not really a very good answer, is it? But I'm always fascinated by these kinds of books, books that change the world by Andrew Taylor, because for me, I always want to know who the person is that's written them before I really get into mm. what I, you know, the list that they give me, because who that person is, you know, informs their list as Absolutely. well. Like my, my list of 50 would be probably, you know, if I ever sat down and wrote it, <laughs> would probably be quite different to Andrew Taylor's. And yeah. um, so, you know, someone who has the confidence to come out and write a book with a title, Books That Changed the World, mm -hmm. like should be in brackets in my opinion, <laughs> personally, I think, um, I find really interesting. So I don't know. I mean, have you got one? Tell me what, what book changed your I, world. Well, I think it's interesting because as, um, you know, you where – in this industry and we're journalists and editors and that sort of thing, I do find it – I remember books that changed my world from high school and they had a profound impact on my love of writing. Um, but these days I find it very hard to read a book and not kind of structurally edit it as I go mm. <laughs> or think, oh, I wonder why they did that or I would have done it this way or, you know, so I, I do find it hard to just lose myself in the book. Um, yeah. It does happen from time to time, of course, but I am still – I've still – can't help having that editor's hat on and, um, you know, and sometimes it's actually coming useful. I was reading this book one day by a best, best, you know, globally best-selling author and mm -hmm. I was reading the Australian edition and I was reading going, this doesn't make sense and I'm like editing it as I go and mm -hmm. I thought to myself, I came back to it like a few hours later and I'm like, this is really not right so I edited it oh. and I sent it to the author. Oh, in America, oh. I won't say who, and because it just Valerie Koo, because it was like <laughs> this is this is actually so wrong, it can't, it just can't be right, and he. Um, wrote back and he said, "Oh my God, that is so wrong. It's like just been printed wrong in the Australian edition." Oh. And he, you know, and he sent me a gift, like, and Ooh. a big thank you note and all this kind of stuff so that the – and obviously then the Australian edition um, I hopefully had been changed after that because it was literally, like, completely wrong. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of useful to do that from time <laughs> to time. <laughs> I absolutely love the fact that you edited it and sent it to him. That is <laughs> – see, this is why you make people cry, Val. No, no. This no. is very <laughs> – he got that and went, oh, no. But I did it in a nice way because it was going to make him seem like an idiot if he really thought this, but it was actually just um, transposed wrongly in yeah. the Australian edition, whereas the US edition was correct. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Okay. 
to the world of blogging. I've been fascinated by this story um, in uh, in the world of blogging this week. Uh, So you go to IKEA. Do you go to IKEA? Uh, if I have to, yeah. I prefer to send other people for me. Yes, yes, bit the same, bit the yeah. same. But you yeah. know, IKEA is a ritual and a kind of necessary evil from time to time. Uh, but some people love IKEA, and mm. this particular blogger in Malaysia who goes by the name of Jules Yap loves IKEA. And um, she has a website, well, a blog called IKEA Hackers. And what it does, it showcases um, IKEA furniture from people around the world who have, you know, assembled it in different ways or, or you know, used it for different things, you know, um, so in, in various parts of their house. And it's, you know, very visual. And it's all about yeah. her love of IKEA and other people's love of IKEA. Anyway, the idiots at IKEA... Oh, right. Right. I see where this is going. (laughs) Sent her a cease and desist letter basically citing that her site, ikeahackers.net, has infringed upon its intellectual property rights. And in the letter they asked her to transfer the the domain name ikeahackers.net to them um, right. And if they, she didn't do that, they would not take any legal action against her. So the blog has been going for eight years. She's been in love with IKEA for eight years and now IKEA does this, which is insane because all she does is wax lyrical about how fantastic IKEA is. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Goodness me. Goodness me. Goodness me. But, you know, it raises an important thing. It does raise that whole that whole question of you know domain names and trademarks and you know and I think a lot of people wander into the blogosphere without really understanding how that stuff works and um, you know they either get themselves into trouble down the track or they find themselves hijacked by someone down the track because they haven't they haven't sort of gone to the to the possible lengths that they need to go to to protect their intellectual property, and I, th- I think we're only going to see this become more and more of an issue, um, you know, down the track. Personally, do you would you agree with oh, that? Oh, absolutely, because people make the mistake of thinking that just because they've registered the n- domain name that that's enough that they now own the right to use that, but that's not the case at all. A domain name is just a domain name; it doesn't give you the right to the sole right to use that name, um, unless you do trademark it, of course. Uh, so it's something that, yeah, we're definitely going to see a lot more of, especially as blogs become more and more, um, more and and more popular. And ProBlogger uh, also put a uh, interesting link up on um, why bloggers need to do more than just trademark their blog name, and we'll put that link in the show notes as well. I might have to read that. Did you have you trademarked Valerie Koo? Can you do you have to trademark your own name? Oh, I don't think you can. Um, need to do that. Uh, I don't know. This is not legal advice, so I'm not entirely No, sure. clearly. Maybe we need to investigate that. <laughs> um, I suppose you can because there's the famous case of Colette Dinnigan um, who, uh, you know, um, stopped the jewellery store, I believe, Colette, from um, oh, right, using, yeah. using that name and they had to, you know, call it something else um, or, add a, or add something else to, the, to their name. Um, so I suppose you can. And if you can prove that you trade on it, as Colette Dinnigan does. Um, mm. But, you know, there are definitely some really good IP lawyers out there and that's definitely who, sh- who you should consult if you definitely. have any questions about that. Um, mm. But obviously if somebody else has 
it has the same name as you, John Smith and John Smith. There's not a lot you can yeah, do. Yeah, it makes it awkward. <laughs> yeah, it does. Right. But in the meantime, do tell us, who is our writer in residence this week? Well, our writer in residence this week is Greg Barron. And Greg is the Australian author, best-selling author, of a series of fantastic thrillers. And he has a new book out um, now-ish. And he is... So we had a big chat about, you know, how to write a thriller, what makes a thriller exciting, et cetera, et cetera. And he's a guy who, like me, loves a good chat about writing, like possibly loves chatting about writing more than we love writing. Um, so we had, a, we had a great time. Fantastic. Let's listen to Greg. Greg Barron is the author of two thriller novels and one digital novelette called Voodoo Dawn. His books are full of action, adventure, explosions and more, and he's fairly adventurous himself, having visited five of the seven continents, canoed down a swollen river and crossed Arnhem Land on foot. His new book, Lethal Sky, is out on July 1st and offers more thrills and spills. So, hi, Greg. Hi, Alison. Here you are on solid ground. No adventures this week? None outside the ordinary. We did uh, have a long drive on the weekend, but uh, down to the Riverina, which was a great, great trip. Love exploring Australia. It's, uh, it's the rest of the world. It's a wonderful country. Fantastic. All right, so let's talk about um, sort of action thrillers because that's obviously what you specialise in. What What first drew you to writing this kind of story? Most definitely reading this kind of story. Okay. I grew up reading all the great thriller writers of the day, Alastair MacLean, Ian Fleming, Wilbur Smith, Tom Clancy, John Le Carre, Jack Higgins, and I used to read, like a lot of people, under the uh, bedclothes at night uh, with a torch, under my desk when I was supposed to be studying, <laughs> in the bath, and uh, I came from a big family, so we handed uh, books from person to person. Uh, we talked about books a lot, and I just loved the way a book could carry me away just purely with words and images and I just wanted to do that for other people. So when did you write your first one and, and um, you know, like was, the, was it just that you sat down to write something and this is what came out or did you specifically set out to write a thriller? That's a really interesting question for me because I never saw myself as a thriller writer and... It took me a long time to get published, uh, more than 10 years uh, before I found a publisher. And I wrote in several genres during that time, but I always wanted to write page turners. Right. I, always, I, I couldn't not write things with a, a, a powerful story that propel you along. But I always struggled a little bit with the, the genre tag. I always wanted to be a mainstream writer in a way. I wanted to, to write books that everyone could read and, and not try and limit it. I think the uh, being put into a genre is partly a publishing thing. Yep. Uh, bookshops like it. The publishers like it. They know exactly how to market you. They know exactly your placement in the market. Yep. So they like to give you a tag and, and for you to continue to produce in that, in that genre. Yep. I think my agent... And I've got a, it took me five years to get an agent. Right. And during the, the next five years, when he helped me towards publication, he helped me to understand that what I was writing loosely fitted into, this, uh, into the thriller genre. Yeah. And when I did finally get a, a contract from HarperCollins and they picked up 
the first of uh, the what, what has ultimately become a three-book series, Rotten Gods, they said to me, what are you working on now? And we, you know, this was in the boardroom at the HarperCollins offices down in Sydney, and I had you know, everyone from the head of publishing down sitting around the table. And they said, well, what are you working on now? And I said, oh, actually, I'm writing a book that's set in, partly in ancient Egypt and partly in, and they cut me off, and they said, what about writing two more of these? Right. Uh, you know, can you give us something with these same characters um, in a similar world and uh, basically give us three thrillers just like this one? And I said, of course. Why not? Yes. No that's pressure. Right. That, so actually the impetus uh, to continue along the thriller genre path came from the publishers. Okay, and, and is it, but it's obviously something that you really enjoy writing. Absolutely. Yeah, which is great. And the more I think about my older works, the more I realise that they were thrillers, and sometimes I didn't quite realise that. Okay. Do you think you need to be the adventurous type to write gripping adventure? I think you need to have experienced a lot of things to know how they feel. Right. I think you need to have experienced fear to be able to describe it. I think you need to have experienced some of the people in the world who are very scary. You need to have uh, been in situations where your life is possibly at risk um, to be able to describe those things. But look, I think writers become writers because they're, they're very good at putting themselves in other people's shoes. So no lack of experience is insurmountable with writing. But uh, it certainly helps. Okay, so what do you think are the key hallmarks of a great thriller? A, a really good thriller has to, has, has to be big in scope. Thrillers tend to uh, describe major events or be involved with major events rather than small ones. So if you're writing a thriller set during World War II, you would tend to... Uh, have characters who are movers and shakers, decision makers at a, at a global level. Yeah. If you're writing a small literary novel, you might concentrate on one family in Berlin living through uh, the war or one family in, in England uh, doing the same thing. But a thriller has to have characters who are doing things and driving decisions and making stuff happen. I think the other hallmark of a thriller is that detail is, is important to thriller readers and it, you, in some more military styles, you'll see they spend a lot of time describing military hardware. Yes. I'm kind of halfway down that road, okay. but not at the extreme level. Uh, but thriller readers tend to like things to be right, right. to be exact. Okay. If you make a change in a historical context for the sake of the story, I think it needs to be noted somewhere. And the, what I have found is the readers know a lot of stuff. Right. Collectively, your readers know more about your topic than you did, at least before you started researching it. Uh, so you have to be good. Your detail has to be spot on. Will they Finally, contact think, you? Oh, sorry. No, that's all right. And, and the final thing about thrillers, you have to really immerse the reader's senses in the story. So it's not just about 
a matter of uh, uh, telling them uh, what's happening in the story. You need to involve as many of their senses as possible so that if, if your character is wading through freezing cold water, you have to describe his trousers winding around his legs and the goosebumps on his skin. That is the kind of detail that will really get readers feeling as if they're there, and that's the ultimate aim. Okay, so it's not just about sort of action scene after action scene after action scene. It's actually about immersing the reader in the story. Yes, absolutely. Action without involvement in the characters is, is very empty. And it can be can be actually boring, believe it or not. Right. Uh, action only works when you've got well-developed characters that the reader is sympathising with and is really going along for the ride with. So do you start with your characters? Or do you start with the story? It, it's a hard question because, to me, a few things tend to come at once. But, no, I'll probably start... Uh, with the story first and then start to develop some characters or the characters start to present themselves to me uh, and put their hand up and say, look, I want to be in this. And you can see them in your peripheral vision and you invite them to come centre stage and, and you examine them and you decide whether uh, they're going to part, be part of the story. Right. Like a lot of writers, there are a lot of false starts out there and the first thing you have to decide when a story idea comes along is whether it's got the legs to make a novel. Right. Because a lot of story ideas are two or three chapters worth or um, a long, short story worth, but they're not actually big enough to develop into a full-length novel. Yep. Um, but I probably have some kind of story idea come along every couple of weeks. <laughs> I do tend to note them down um, for future reference. Sometimes I'll even get really excited and just write a couple of chapters and just see what happens. Uh, then I might put it away for two years oh. before I come back to it again. Uh, I, I have a project I'm working on at the moment and I wrote the first words of that something like nine years ago and it just won't leave me alone. So I know that story's got the legs and uh, and I've developed it and I've written all these bits and pieces over the years and I'm just trying to bring it all together and, and see what happens. But the story ideas that are false starts you, you realise that's why and you, you just put them aside. Okay. And will you pretend... Like, I mean, nothing's ever wasted, is it? Because some of the stuff that you come up with with those particular stories may be used elsewhere or down the track it may develop into something bigger. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I never throw anything out. Um, I save drafts. I often have... Well, I have a whole series of files on my computer that are called Bits. All right. And it might be Rotten God's Bits, which, which were discarded sections from there. Occasionally I'll be working on a new book and I'll go, hang on, didn't I have a guy climbing across a whole bunch of building roofs and then climbing down and running away in another story and then you can kind of uh, recycle it to a degree. It doesn't happen very often though, but no. I do. And occasionally also you write a couple of really good lines that don't fit into the current story that, that do get a run elsewhere. Okay. And that's really nice. Well, you feel like you've done the work before, don't you? It's like a bonus. <laughs> well, it is a little bit. It's always easy to play around with text rather than uh, write it for the first time. That's, yeah, isn't that the truth? So that, that brings me then to your writing process. Like, do you 
plot, you were talking about you sort of take an idea and have a look and see how good its legs are. Do you plot the whole novel out in advance before you start writing or, or does it develop as you go? I've done both. Virtually all my stories I plot to some degree and my technique usually is to create a, well, first of all, handwritten notes. Mm. But then I'll often make a, a table in Microsoft Word with uh, scene numbers, chapter numbers, uh, beginning, middle and end. And for each, in each square, I'll, I'll list the characters involved, uh, the location, and then a quick summary of what happens in that scene or chapter. Right. And often I'll also add another thing saying, what is the purpose of this scene? You know, why is this scene in the story? And yeah. if I can't come up with a valid reason for that, I don't write it, and it gets left by the wayside. It's Over a few weeks, I'll, I can, I'll play around with that, get the um, plot structure pretty tight, and then I'll often write two or three chapters, and then I'll rewrite my plan. Okay, wow. I'll find that the direction I had, I, I'd originally thought of wasn't working or... So then I'll often um, rewrite it. Then normally that'll keep me going through the first draft. Right. And, and I'll finish the first draft over a period of two or three months. I find, often I finish the first draft and I go, hmm, yeah, that's pretty good. I'm pretty happy with that. <laughs> and then I'll put it away for a couple of weeks, maybe a month, and then I'll read it again. And that's when I go, oh, dear. <laughs> that's not very good at all. And... <laughs> It's almost like a form of depression. I just go, oh, this is awful. And I'll, I'll mope around for days and days. Yeah. And then and reread it and make notes. And then I'll be out walking somewhere and I'll go, hang on. What if I do something, you know, such and such? And, you know, put, make Emily a, uh, a school headmistress instead of a, a, va a vagrant or something like that. And, yeah. and then I start to rebuild and... Uh, and I rebuild my own psyche at the same time as I'm rebuilding the book. And over the next few months, I'll be making heaps and heaps of handwritten notes again. I might completely plan it again. And slowly, I'll start to get a second draft. And the second draft for me is working out exactly the story I want to tell, which I was never completely certain of in the beginning. Right. You're, you're searching for the core Every story has a core. They talk about elevated speeches. They talk about yeah. being able to state the story's premise in two sentences. It, it's true. You need to be able to say uh, basically what, what your story's about in a few sentences. Yeah. So if and someone says to you, what's this book about, you've got an answer. You do. And it's hard. Mm. And uh, I, I find when I do book signings, the first thing people say, what's it about? And you go, oh, well, gee, I don't know. Well, it's, <laughs> it's just uh, a really great story. A couple of characters who do, you know, and you start raving on. But uh, the times when I have actually learnt a, you know, a succinct plot summary, it's helped enormously. All through, not just for the writing process, but also in the, the sales process. All right, it so is. I'm going to test you now. Tell yeah. us about your new book, Lethal Sky, out on July one. What's it about, Greg? It's about a group of terrorists who get hold of a biological weapon and they threaten to use it against the world's great cities. Fantastic. See, right there, I'm in. 
Someone's going to save the world, aren't they? Exactly. Fantastic. That's what I was saying about scope yep. uh, with thrillers. You know, big stuff, you know, uh, the, the stakes have to be high. So it could be the death of a civilization. It could be the death of the world. It could be uh, the wiping out of a city. It could, you know, things have to... The reader has to be worried that something really bad's going to happen. Yeah. Not just that, you know, uh, John's going to stub his toe. You know, it has to be <laughs> serious, serious stuff. Uh, Lethal Sky's been really interesting for me because it's the first time I've used um, Australia as a setting. Right. It's only partially. It's probably about a, a quarter of the novel is um, about Sydney, which was great for research. It saved me a lot of travel and a lot of... Um, <laughs> Uh, Wikipedia ring. Uh, very uh, kind of fun for me to use locations I knew and even just to sit in an aeroplane over Sydney because part of it's set in an aeroplane over Sydney and just draw, uh, draw with words what I saw. And Sydney from the air is immensely interesting, as you know. Mm, definitely. And uh, you know, just to use those kind of images in the, in the book was fantastic for me. Right, so um, we I also think that the local angle will be um, will be great for my uh, um, marketing. Yeah, you know, because people can relate to it. Yeah, because you don't often there aren't that many thrillers set in Australia either. No, not kind of big terrorist um, no. stories. So I'm, I'm, yeah, and I didn't do that as a deliberate device. It just kind of because I had an Australian character, this kind of worked that way. So yeah. <laughs> bonus. Um, <laughs> Well, we talked earlier about research and you said how important it was to get your guns right and your explosions right and all of that sort of thing. So how long does it take you to research a, a novel? Like how long did the research for Lethal Sky take? I research as I write. I use several different techniques. Usually when I'm writing the first draft, if I... And I, I've, I've learned a fair, a fair bit of stuff that I don't or didn't already know. Uh, through the research in the previous novels. But if I get to something I don't know and I'm writing first draft, I'll tend to just write XXX. Yeah. Um, I'll exit out or there's a couple of code words I'll use for um, researching later. And either at the end of the day's writing, I'll come back and uh, look them up. Uh, or if they're more difficult and I've got to contact someone, I might email someone at the end of the day Otherwise, it gets left for the second draft. Right. At which stage, a very slow and tortuous process of pulling it all together, I, you know, find out what I, what I need to know. So I don't have a research stage. Right. Because I you could research could. forever, couldn't you? I think a lot of people get themselves so enamoured of the research that they never actually get to writing the book. Yeah, yeah. And uh, doing it up front, is, it suits some people. Yeah. Some people... I'm a bit of a risk taker. Some people are perfectionists from the word go and they love to just get it right, you know, and know everything they need to know before they write a word. And that's fine. That's a, a different personality type. Yeah. I'm happy to get it close in the first draft or, or uh, have a guess in the first draft and then I've got the second, third, fourth, etc. draft to, to get it right. But to give you an idea, the first draft of Lethal Sky, I did in between the finishing, you know, bits and pieces of Savage Tide, yeah, yeah. Um, it probably took me about five months all up to write the first draft, and then I spent at least 12 months rewriting it. Wow, okay. At least, and that's before it even goes to the editor, 
and they do their structural draft and then they do their, their copy edit. So my rewriting is extensive, tortuous. I, I make stru huge structural changes. Right. In fact, with Lethal Sky, I got uh, the initial report back from the structural editor and after that, I made huge changes to that manuscript wow. that weren't even asked, you know, weren't asked for by the, the structural editor. But she made a couple of comments that made me think there's a better way of doing this overall. And I cut a 110,000 word manuscript down to 65,000 words. Oh. And this is just a, basically a month before I had to hand it in for the copy edit. Wow. So I wrote a new 50,000 words in a four-week period. Wow. And I'm feeling much better about my own structural editor right now. <laughs> oh, I'm a, nut, I'm a nutcase, really. <laughs> because I could have just stuck with what I had, and it was, it was a pretty good novel. You know, this is what the structural editor said. She said, well, this works. Well, it all works pretty well, um, blah, blah, blah. But I just felt that I could do a better, do it better. So I did. Okay. And I caused myself an awful lot of sleepless nights and late nights and I, I basically hardly saw my family for a month. So I just, uh, uh, but it, it's there now and it's done and, and it's, yeah, I'm happy with it. Fantastic. Well, that's the key to it, isn't it? You have to be happy with it at the end of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, what do you think are the key characteristics of a great action hero? Like what have you got in your head when you're, you know, you, when you're pulling your protagonist together? Number one, a, a really good action hero has to have a strong moral core. You have to have someone who, uh, it sounds, I mean, it is a cliche, but uh, who fights for the right thing, that they have, have strong values, that they value human life and they abhor evil, is probably almost essential. You can turn that on your on its head, and you know, have someone who's questionable morally. But I, I just don't think people like to read that. Okay. I think at the heart of every every human being is, is some kind of admiration of what we call good. Yeah. So I think at some level they need to have a strong moral core. They need to be considerate, polite. Not necessarily polite, actually. That's probably not quite true. <laughs> I can think of some action heroes who are actually quite brash. Yeah. But uh, at some level, they're admirable. Yeah. They've also got to be very capable at what their you know, particular task is. So they need to have skills. They need to be well-trained. Usually, they need to have a mentor of some kind. Yep. Who, you know, every time, every now and then, when they wander off the path a little bit, you know, there's a, a hand on their shoulder uh, steering them back. Uh, some people would argue that they need to be like attractive. Mm. Um, I think you'll find 95% of action heroes are kind of described as attractive. Mm. That's just simply an image imagery thing, you know. Um, I, I like it personally when they're a bit quirky, yep. a little bit interesting. I like. To, I love them to have a sense of humour. I think that's uh, really important. Steve Warland, um, another Australian thriller writer who's written uh, Combustion and uh, Velocity, he uses humour deliberately yeah. as a 
as a way of getting close to the reader and getting the reader's sympathy. His, his books are quite funny as well. I, I tend to come across humour by accident and I just, you know, I happen to write a sentence and I go, hang on, this situation's funny and then I'll milk it. Then I'll go back to it and I'll, you know, try and bring out the humour in it and, and make it interesting. I think all, all good books have humour to some degree. Yep. So um, if I was going to sit down and write a thriller, what would be your three top tips for me to get me started? Think of a really strong concept with high stakes. Mm-hmm. So start with a really strong idea. Uh, you know, an asteroid's going to hit the Earth or uh, the, uh, these uh, creatures are going to crawl out of the sea and take over the world, whatever, you know. Yeah. Something that's strong and catastrophic is probably a good start. Doesn't that, you know, catastrophic is a little bit extreme, but... Um, if it is, so much the better. Um, I would choose some, a strong character, a strong main character, yep. a strong supporting character, often of the opposite sex but not necessarily, yep. um, a mentor-type character, and then I would think up some really good obstacles to them preventing the catastrophe that you've already thought of. Okay. It's all about those obstacles. It's all about um, not letting it be easy for your uh, your protagonist to uh, save the day. Also, the antagonist is very interesting, has to be strong once again. In Rotten Gods, I was really keen to show that the antagonists, in this case um, Muslim terrorists, were came from somewhere that, that they were believable that they had that they had lives of their own and that they actually believed they were right yeah. in acting the way they do. So yeah. I really wanted to show that side. Yeah. And you you do run into some problems there because the very best antagonists are truly evil. You know, they can't walk past a cat without kicking it. Yeah. Um, and they treat other people horribly all the time. Now, that's, the, that's the kind of the easy way of doing it. But when you want to present them as being balanced, it's harder, but you get a stronger result overall. So I wanted, I wanted all those characters to be believable. I wanted people to understand where they came from and why they act the way they do. Okay. So bear that in mind when you're putting your stuff together. Yeah. Yeah, try and make, make, make them balanced. You know, they always have their soft side. I mean, Hitler loved dogs and painted pictures. Uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's almost a cliche, but it's, it's true. They, they do, they're not, you know, no one's purely, you know, they're nasty all the time. Do you ever feel a little bit mean to your protagonists, you know, like you make it so hard for them, every day is difficult? Do you ever feel like, you know, I'm being a bit nasty about all this? It really surprised me, I, I, and I was quite touched after uh, Savage Tide came out and something particularly nasty happened to one of the characters. And people genuinely, you know, were annoyed about it. You know, like, you know, <laughs> How kind of you coming up and saying, what did you do that to PJ for? <laughs> Poor PJ. And then when I was writing the third one, I was getting messages through my wife from people she works with, you better not kill him off in the next book. 
serious. And I was just like, oh, people actually care. Like, they really, really care. And so you do have a responsibility. You can't just kill people off willy-nilly for no reason. I mean, if that's what's got to happen, then that's what happens. But you don't do it lightly and you don't do it spuriously, you know, without any reason. Or you're going to annoy readers. Yeah, you're they have the consequences. in the characters and they hate losing them. Sometimes they have to lose them, but you don't just do it for, you know, on a whim. <laughs> Never kill them <laughs> off on a whim. There's some good advice. All right, well, thank you so much for talking to us, to, to us today, Greg, and good luck Absolute with pleasure. Lethal Sky. I'm so glad that I gave you the opportunity to practice your elevator pitch with that one. And um, we shall look forward to seeing them out on the shelves. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Alison. Great interview, Al. Do you read thrillers yourself? I do. I really enjoy a cracking story and a thriller will give you a cracking story that moves, you know, moves quickly, has a big, big scope and um, sometimes I just really, really enjoy that. I don't read as many of them as I used to. I went through a phase in my late 20s, early 30s of just, you know, going insane on them mm. but not so much. What about you? Do you read I do, but I find them a bit stressful, so I have to be in the right <laughs> mood. Because, <laughs> you know, my heart starts beating faster and it's kind of like, oh, you know. <laughs> and you handle the pressure. <laughs> exactly. But um, let's move on to our app pick for the week. And I came across this app. I think it's really cute. Um, and we'll put the link in the show notes, but it, it, for those writing it down, it's writer.com bighugelabs.com <laughs> and if you go there it's actually just writing on a green screen and you know when I first started writing back in the day that's what I started writing on I had a green screen on oh. my very first computer and so it's very nostalgic it's all a little bit like um you know Matthew Broderick in War Games do you remember that movie yes I remember that, that, that movie that. so <laughs> he had a green screen and, and I thought it was so cool I had the same <clears throat> screen as Matthew Broderick in War Games um, so if you want to write on a green screen, so which minimises distraction and may take mm. you back, especially if you are writing about thermonuclear warfare, um, yep. then uh, that's yes. something that you might want to check out. <laughs> wow, okay, yep. What's our yep. working writer's tip this week? Well, this is a question that we get asked a lot. I know that, um, well, I know that I get asked a lot. Um, is And the question is, how can I tell if a publication pays their writers or not, mm. um, which is a very interesting question and a big question because, you know, obviously if you're going to pitch a story and it gets accepted, you want to know that you're actually going to get some compensation for your work at the end of it. Um, so I thought that we, maybe we have a little quick chat about that. Now, for me, mm. if a publication is an industry publication and if there is a full credit for the author at the bottom of the story, including LinkedIn links and websites and yep. phone numbers and all that sort of stuff, yep. then generally speaking, I'm assuming that they're not paying. Yep. I'm assuming that that writer has done it for industry credibility to up their profile um, and to sort of like to get some, some what would you call it, content out there. Yep. So that's that, oh, to build expertise and authority. I think that's probably the term, isn't it? Um, so that's, that's sort of like where I start. What about you? Like, do you have a, a sort of like a list you go through of how you might tell? 
Yes, I think there are two telltale signs. Number one uh, is the number of ads. So if there's very few ads, then mm-hmm. clearly there's very little revenue coming in, which means yep. they have a very little budget. So they're yes. unlikely to have the budget to pay. So have a look at the number of ads, basically, and yep. the quality of the ads. Like if they're all little, little squidgy ones, then it, they might not be getting you know, getting much money for those ads. So, yeah, have a look at the ads. And the other telltale sign is exactly what you say, is if there's an article written by someone and then there's a huge box at the end or even a not-so-huge box that says, you know, so-and-so is the leading trainer in human resources and this is his website and this is, you know, the LinkedIn profile and all of that, then chances are they have placed a thought leadership piece which they're not paid for. What I think is really important to point out, though, is Mm. that there are publications that have a mixture of paid and unpaid. That's right. So within those publications, you may well be um, paid, but they may well also feature those thought leadership pieces from industry experts who they do not pay. So it's important to make that distinction when you're looking at a publication. So do you think then that the easiest way to find out is simply to ask? Study it first. Have a look at the publication first because that's also going to tell you, you know, quite a lot about, um, you know, the the publication. Because when you're first starting out too, you want to ideally be writing for publications that you're interested in. So yes. and and writing articles that you're that you're interested in and I, I I've said this to many people that your first one or two, whether you get paid or not. It, you know, as long as, as long as you're writing a quality product for a quality publication, I'm yeah. not that fussed on the whole payment thing. After your second one, I think you should be only looking at the ones that, you know, that do pay. Yeah. So your first one or two, if you've never been published before and your first question is, do you pay? Yeah, you've, awkward. You've got to ask about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. You're making me cry again. You know that, too. <laughs> So, we want to thank a lot of the people who've been um, leaving reviews for us on iTunes. Some people have been saying some rather nice things, Al. Oh, we do. We really want to thank them. And I particularly want to thank Hot Rob, who wants to adopt us, and I'm (laughs) loving that, and has taken us in as part of the family. Um, Just hi, Hot Rob, and we're really, really glad that you're listening. But we've had some great reviews, and people, you know, we really appreciate the time um, that you guys take to let us know that it's that it's working for you. Um, we always very happy to hear from you. If there's something that you want answered and we haven't got to it yet, then please, you know, let us know. We're like we're always happy to answer your questions and you know find out what you need. So um, you should email us. And what's our email address again, Val? Podcast at writerscentre.com.au. But I want to know what hot. Rob says because um, as you may know Alison I accidentally well because I signed up to iTunes a million years ago in the time that it wasn't available in Australia so I had to you know I had to put my um, address as American in order to get anything and I didn't know any address so I just put you know Beverly Hills 90210 at the time because it's the only postcode that I use. <laughs> <laughs> But as a result, it thinks I'm American and it doesn't show me the review. So I want to know what Hot Rub said. All right, Hot Rub says this. I do hope Val and Al don't mind. I've adopted them. Yep, you're both now part of my family. I can't wait for the kids to get out of the car at school in the morning 
so I can switch on my podcast and nod and giggle and gasp and learn so much from you both. Two ladies who dream of a ladder in their library equals my kind of people. You know, someone who writes a review like that equals my kind of people. Oh, so wow. Thanks, Wait, you rock, Hot Rub. Love your name. <laughs> Love the name. That's actually the only reason I chose to read that review. <laughs> so, We've been adopted by Hot Rub. I love it. So, yes, if you have a question for us, email us at podcasts at writerscentre.com.au. Where do we find you, Al? You'll find me at alisontate.com, blogging. And you'll find me at valeriecoo.com and these podcasts, the show notes, are at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast and in the meantime we're at the end of our episode so what are you going to be up to this week Al? Well I'm going to be continuing on with my exciting burst of writing which is a great start but I've also made a little decision um in my head that my blog has been a little bit neglected. I've only been doing like once a week or thereabouts for the last um, couple of months, I guess because I am so busy writing my children's series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. So I'm, I've been a bit busy with that. But I, I have made a little agreement with myself that I am going to um, lift my game a little bit in that area and attempt to at least bring myself up to twice a week. So, you know, keep an eye out for it, people, and let me, you know, call me out. If I don't write twice a week, you need to say something to me, okay? Because I'm really trying to lift my game. Will I make you cry? Shall I make you cry? Oh, wow, you will <laughs> well, I will be um, uh, on the sofa, uh, delving sofa. into yeah, on the sofa, delving into a book that has landed across my desk, which I'm just intrigued by, and I'm hoping is good. Called Confes- "Confessions of a Qantas Flight Attendant." True tales and gossip from the galley. You know, sometimes, you know, it's like I could read books that change the world, the 50 most influential books in human history. You could, (laughs) Sometimes you just got to do this kind of thing. And so um, I'm interested to know. This is the Housewives of Melbourne side of you coming out, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. I don't don't hide it. I don't hide it. Um, No. On that note, thanks for joining us this week and we'll see you next time. Bye. 